welcome to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Madel, joined as always by Chris Bouguet. Hey, Chris. Hey, Rachel, what's going on? We have a question from a Patreon member, and we love our Patreon, so we answer their questions first. So this question comes from Anna. Can I read it? Go for it. Okay, so Anna is asking um, a question about her autistic son with limited language skills, both expressive and receptive. He's 15. Uh, the preferred way of communication is vocal, but poor articulation. He vocally has about 200 labels to request his basic needs. His AAC repertoire is less than his vocal repertoire. Um, it's just happened that all those years he was attending a top-notch, that was in air quotes, private one-on-one -on -one ABA school uh, where SLPs were BCBAs or were trained by BCBAs. Um, he was using Proloquo to go for years, but his profile was an ABA profile custom made by a BCBA with functional fridge words only. The device was used only as a backup system to repair poor articulation when people could not understand him. There was very limited spontaneous language, very limited motivation and interest, very compliant kid would go with most options offered. In school, Proloquo to go for years was used mostly for running labeling programs. Soon he'll start a new school. After meeting with the new school SLP, the impression is that she wants to move to crescendo, which for people who don't know, that's a kind of vocabulary subset of proloquo, which is focused on core language. Um, I wanna try it, but my concern is, how do I make the transition from one profile, the ABA profile, to another profile, the crescendo one, uh, more smoothly? So Chris, what do you think? Yeah, well, okay, so there's a lot going on here, and let me just say, it sounds very, sadly, typical. Uh, so if this is any consolation, Anna, I think your son out here is not unique in the fact that there are probably lots of other 15-year-olds that were uh, invited to be part, invited is a, is a soft word, were placed in a uh, situation where they uh, they were in a, I love how she puts it in quotes, top-notch private ABA school. Um, they were given a customized AAC system. So in the past, you've heard us talk about a robust AAC. Well, here is a high-tech AAC system that is not set up to be robust. Uh, it sounds like it's a, a bunch of nouns to, uh, and, and she says fringe words, um, that are basically selection. So um, what do we do? What do we do in this situation to help her son? And how does, now that we're transitioning to Crescendo, which is based on, so people aren't familiar with Crescendo, that is the idea that uh, it's a Proloquo2Go's attempt, Assistive Wear's attempt with Proloquo2Go at keeping the buttons in the same spot, where it, uh, uh, as you move up in the number of words available on the home screen, the buttons stay in similar locations. So I, for instance, the word I is always going to be in the top left-hand corner, no matter how many words are displayed on the screen, so that as you progress, the, the theory goes, as you progress your language, you don't have, you have less motor planning to relearn. Um, and I think the argument is too, is try and start with as many words as possible, as, as many as the student can target, uh, so that there's less hits that are necessary. How did I do summarizing that all, Rachel? Yeah, I feel like that that's perfect. And also, I think you did a great job of summarizing Crescendo um, as a way to support motor planning and also core language over time. Mm -hmm. So um, 
The question really comes here is they want to try it in this new school. It's It sort of makes sense. We're starting in a new environment with a new tool, a new set of, of educators. Um, that sounds like, I mean, even if they were in the old environment, switching to something that is more robust makes a lot of sense. But uh, it makes a lot of sense, especially here. And it may even have um, uh, a greater opportunity because it is a lot of newness happening here for this for this student, uh, for this learner. So uh, how would they implement it? I think one of the first things that we, we might want to be thinking about is introducing it in the environment without any expectation of the student, the learner, to use it at all. Is that, how does that sound? Yes. I mean, I think that that should be kind of the way we go into any type of AAC, but um, unfortunately, I think that there's probably been about a lot of compliance-based expectations with the use of this AB, uh, with the use of this AAC system. Um, knowing what we know about ABA, knowing what we know about, you know, the functions of communication, which it seems like is mostly labeling and requesting for the student, there's been a high level of expectation around, um, you know, tell me what this thing is, tell me what you want. Um, and so I think, you know, part of it is like loosening the reins a little bit and showing this this student how, you know, we can model language without the expectation he does anything. Because um, I'm, I'm guessing that the students had a lot of expectations around communication um, and using the system, which can, you know, be really stressful for students. So in this case, this is a mother that's writing us. So uh, in response to mom, you, so as you're implementing this, you could just be sitting on the couch next to your child using it at uh, dinner time. Have it on the table and you use it just to be bring it into the environment and lowering the immediate expectation that you're going to use this too. You know, it's that's the long term game is that you'll use it too. But let's just let other people use it. You know, uh, when you get in the car, maybe have it on the front seat and pull it up and say go and then put it down. And w again, real low expectation at first that he immediately use it. Same thing with teachers. Okay, we're going to read a book and someone's going to sit next to you and they're going to model and occasionally we're just going to let it sit there between us. Uh, maybe gesture like use it if you want to use it, but no, very low pressure. Uh, did I summarize that well, Rachel? Yes. I think that the key here is very low pressure. Um, I also wanted to talk about, uh, you know, this mom says that there's very limited spontaneous language and limited motivation and interests. So I... You know, I think that whenever you're tri trialing a new system or you're transitioning into a new system, even though we're keeping the same system, we're dramatically changing the look of it, um, the function of it, the language in it. And so I think that we have to be really careful about, you know, doing that as an easy transition. It's not like we, you know, take away something that a student knows really well and we start with something immediately new. Um, we can start slowly integrating it. I think there's ways you could probably set up the system so that it has um, some, of, some of the similarities of, um, you know, the old, if you will, system. Um, you know, what's nice about Proloquo2Go Go is that you can actually copy buttons. So you could copy all of his, you know, favorite foods, for example, um, take whatever he is specifically interested in and, you know, put them into the new crescendo vocabulary. Um, but the other thing I want to talk about is 
how can we just help the student become more of an independent communicator? Because, you know, sure, I would love to see the student, you know, being modeled core language and all of those things. And I think that's awesome. And like, yay, SLP, who's like looking at the system thinking, actually, we need to do something better for this student and something more, um, which is what Crescendo is, is doing, right? It's access to more core language. Um, but I feel like part of the challenge is how do we teach the student who's now 15 um, how to become more independent and spontaneous? Um, what that tells me is that he's gotten overprompted, and you know we've scaffolded the learning for him so intensively, um, and we haven't given him enough space and time to actually independently initiate with us um, because we're not seeing a lot of spontaneous language. So you know. We can talk about the system all day long, but really, you know, whether he sticks with this old system or goes with a new system, we need to really talk about the roadblock here, which is how do we get this student more independently initiating communication, um, even if it's just with fringe or nouns. Um, and again, it goes back to how do we provide, um, you know, using a least and most prompting hierarchy, the optimal level of support to get a student more independently, autonomously communicating. So in this case, since they're trying crescendo, right, maybe the idea would be um, to, because you'd want to have them have access to the core boards, right? But then also they could be making requests, uh, again, introducing some of that fringe vocabulary that has already been on the old system, just show them the new location. So here's the new way to request whatever you've requested in the past. Does that sound like a good transition? Yes, I think that sounds perfect. So it's like, how can we build off of this student's success and strength? And he's shown that he has some, you know, success and strengths with labeling and requesting. Um, so how can we transition that to become more independent with those skills? Um, and I think that, you know, finding his favorite foods and show, first showing him and teaching him through modeling where those foods are, right? Um, if they're not in the exact same position and it doesn't look the same. Um, but then how do we step back and allow you know, him to become more independent and, you know, to initiate communication. Um, so yeah, I think that that can happen alongside of modeling core language in motivating meaningful situations to show other types of language for other types of pragmatic functions and purposes. Um, I think you can do all of it at the same time. So let me just make that real, like in a story, uh, real, real practical. So now I'm picturing the, uh, Anna and, um, her son sitting next to each other as they're eating a snack, uh, on the couch. Um, and the, they have crescendo up and mom knows that the student loves this particular snack, uh, and has requested it on the old system. Let me show you where it is on the new system and then eat one of those pieces of snack. Like, so mom just goes, you know, uh, I like, and then goes and finds the word of whatever that snack is, you know, and then show, does it again, does it again, three times, each time eating one of those snacks and then sort of offers it. Like no one can see me. I'm, I'm, I'm gesturing as if I'm going to offer and provide some wait time to see if that student then uh, goes over and does the same thing that I just modeled three times for, that mom just modeled three times for. Sound about right? Yeah. I mean, you're following the least to most prompting hierarchy. <laughs> so yes. 
The other thing that I want to uh, add on to is, and uh, you had mentioned it earlier, but in her e her email, it says there is very limited spontaneous language. Like her son is using very limited spontaneous language, very limited motivation and interests. And you had mentioned that. Um, I think, and and you and I have talked about this many times that this is. Um, uh, phraseology we hear people say a lot. Teachers, speech therapists, parents, they're just not motivated by anything or they're very limited, motivated. And I'm not sure they're interested by anything about other than food. And so I think a way to flip the script on that uh, is to add uh, a simple word at the end of that phrase. And so this is from Carol Dweck and the work she's done on the concept around growth mindset. But if you were to just simply add, yeah, the student has very limited motivation and interests, um, uh, but I... Uh, so far, right? So I guess two words. Or yet. Um, he, I haven't found something that has motivated interest him yet. Um, but I'm given more time. I'm going to keep trying new things that might motivate and interest him. Uh, like uh, Minecraft, like robots, like um, different YouTube videos, uh, like uh, spending time with a, a, a trusted uh, peer, you know, something like that. There might be um, just keep trying things. The student doesn't have very limited motivation and interests. It's that we haven't exposed the student, lead with this mindset, we haven't exposed the student to all the different things that the world has to offer yet to find the right things that motivate, just motivate him and interest him. The other thing is this uh, student is autistic. So what we know from autistic adults is there's a huge sensory element. Um, so whenever I'm feeling stuck on motivations and interests, I'm always thinking, how can I help students start to advocate for their sensory needs um, because that is motivating. Imagine your sensory system was like out of control to the point where you're not able to sit and attend and you know you feel very dysregulated. Um, having someone come in and help support that regulation, help support your sensory system, and then help you advocate for that support, um, our kids are motivated by that. And so whenever I see a diagnosis of autism, I think sensory, like where, how are we helping to support sensory and also Sometimes those types of activities are really fun and engaging for students. They love the like shaving cream or swinging or, you know, all these things that we could present. Um, so whenever I'm feeling stuck uh, with a team who's like, they're not motivated by anything. I'm like, can we do a deep dive into some sensory based activities that can, you know, either help kid, a kid regulated or that they're really excited because, you know, they're sensory seeking or they have all types of sensory interests that we haven't even really uncovered yet. Uh, I want to add on to what Anna said here. She said, um, after meeting with the new school SLP, so this new SLP, the impression is that she wants, my impression is that she wants to move to, to Crescendo. So that to me is a clue, Rachel, that this SLP sort of knows the board that was used before. Um, it's not uh, it's not ultimately going to lead to success for the student. That, that being able to uh, label 200 things is not really effective communication, right? It's not the whole gamut that we want for a uh, for anyone. So why I say that, Anna, to you specifically, is it sounds like maybe this new SLP sort of gets that. I would say uh, the way it's written here is the impression is, I would say have a frank conversation with that SLP, see where that SLP wants to go, 
and even in a broader sense, not just the SLP, but the teacher, the entire team supporting your student so you can all be on the same page about where you, why they're thinking crescendo, why they're thinking probably uh, most likely a more robust language system um, than just a bunch of uh, a, a, a choice board that talks out loud, which is what it sounds like the, the previous system was set up to be. Um, this SLP sounds like they have some experience here. Lean into that and trust them. One more thing I'll add, Chris. Um, so this student does have verbal speech. So I feel like that's an important element here. It has, you know, limited language skills, but does have, you know, the ability to label and request, you know, about 200 words, but with poor articulation. So that's a huge element to this is it says that the device was being used to repair communication breakdowns. Um, you know, we also can think about this device as a way to teach language concepts, um, you know, especially core vocabulary. Um, and so I think just like thinking about how the student, you know, is communicating. Um, and part of the problem when we have verbal communicators uh, who aren't being understood is they're so used to um inadvertently getting negative feedback when they communicate. And it's not, you know, it's not because we want to give that negative feedback, but when a student says something to us and we're like, huh, or what, or say it again, it's like this constant negative experience where it's like, I try to communicate to, to someone, they don't understand me. And so, you know, what would we all do if we kept saying something over and over and over again, we would give up. You know, we would stop trying. Um, and so I think that that's a huge element here too. I always think about um, how frustrating it is, um, you know, when we're on a phone call with someone and we start losing reception and we're like, what, huh? And like, they keep saying it over and over again or we keep saying it over and over again. And we're like, how many times do I need to say this? But for whatever reason, they're not, you know, getting the message. Um, you know, kids can get really frustrated and can stop trying. Um, and so I think, you know, the moral of the story is, or the element here is how can we give this student positive reinforcement for any time he tries? Um, because again, if you're just getting negative, 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 um, like I didn't understand that. And then actually you said the wrong, I'll put that in air quotes, the wrong word on your device. Um, yeah, like he's going to give up because he's like, okay, like, I don't know what you guys want from me. And so I'm just going to stop trying. Well, Anna, I hope we give you some insight here and give you some uh, strategies about how to move forward. And um, just a quick reminder that if you are a Patreon supporter, you go to uh, patreon.com slash talking with tech and you ask us questions. We prioritize these in the uh, in the banters. We bump this right up to the top of our things to talk about in our banter episodes, our, our banter segments of our episodes. Um, so if you would like to do that, again, it's patreon.com slash talking with tech. Rachel, tell us about our interview today. We are doing part two of Bilingual AAC. We're talking all about bilingual AAC assessment and intervention. Um, super excited to finish up this conversation that I had with these ladies. My name is Lance McLemore, and I am a team member with Impact Voices. AAC users make up a very small percentage of the population. We are scattered, isolated, and rarely or never get to meet anyone like us. This makes it difficult to impossible to have a community. Impact Voices helps to fill in that gap. 
Impact Voices is a non-profit organization who supports, empowers, and connects AAC users worldwide. Impact Voices connects AAC users together to empower them to make an impact in their community. Impact Voices creates a space where AAC users of different abilities and experience come together to talk, laugh, encourage each other, and enjoy the company of others like ourselves. For more information on Impact Voices and to get involved, visit our website, connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. During the pandemic, I definitely saw um, a switch in a lot of my bilingual students who were at home most of the time. Uh, they're like on that bilingual continuum, they were becoming a little more Spanish dominant because they were at home so much more with parents. It was amazing to see that they were uh, choosing to, you know, speak more in their home language and Spanish as opposed to when I was seeing them in the schools that they would definitely use more, more English in the school. I mean, it's the, the majority language in a school, essentially. But I always, um, you know, prompt them in both English and Spanish and just let them take the lead. And typically, more than not, they do uh, use English more so. But it was really great to see and hear them use their home language once they were at home because they were just they were being exposed to more Spanish and being modeled more Spanish at home. Yeah, I feel like we learned a lot during the pandemic about what's happening at home. And the we, we had opportunities to do a lot more crossover between school and home, which I think is really important. Um, when we're thinking about modeling, so say for my student who knows, uh, you know, knows agua, not water, um, you know, let's talk about modeling on AAC. We know that's how students who use AAC learn AAC. Are we modeling in both languages? Does it, does it matter, you know, to do both? Are there certain situations where yes, you'd model in both languages? It feels like modeling is already hard enough to get our communication partners doing. Um, so having the extra layer of like now toggle to Spanish, now toggle back to English. Talk to me about like the real day-to-day in the life stuff that our clinicians, you know, and listeners are experiencing. I can share. So this is how I do bilingual therapy. Um, I do one day in Spanish and then I model one entire day in English. And it's usually when I'm pushing in and all the academic vocabulary is already in English. Um, And Maria can talk a little bit more about like the cross linguistic approach versus a bilingual approach, but there's so many different ways you can go about it. But that's my day to day is I will literally, if I see them twice a week, for example, my Spanish day is my pullout day. And then my English day, I push in and I model language that way. And I always um, if available, I have a light tech board that they have to uh, that they have at their disposal in English and Spanish. Okay, so what I'm hearing is that we're just kind of immersing in a single language, not necessarily teaching the word in both English and Spanish. Yeah, so um, there's different ways that we can approach uh, teaching another language, right? The form that Alma just described, which is one day, teaching in English and the other day teaching in Spanish, that's something called uh, the cross-linguistic 
by uh, approach of teaching, I guess, two languages. Um, that that is something that uh, someone that's a native speaker of the language could definitely do, right? Because uh, I speak Spanish, I can teach one day in Spanish, and then tomorrow I can speak in English. Um, the other approach is something called the bilingual approach, and that is teaching both languages at the same time. Um, so it's similar to what you were uh, describing of like going from the word agua and then going to water and then kind of, you know, making the relationship that these two words mean the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, our templates, you know, our whole work that we're trying to do is based on this bilingual approach because we do understand that the monolingual SLP does not know the other language, right? So we have in mind that um, English is going to be happening and then Spanish is going to be implemented uh, to model certain words, high frequency words that we've uh, listed, right? So if it's water, it'll be agua and water. And um, and that's how the modeling will go. So I would say that for a monolingual SLP, uh, the closest that we can get to is a bilingual approach. So um, always with the umbrella of English, but trying to implement our Spanish in there to support the so, development. Okay. What, what I typically do in my therapies too is depending on the... Um, low tech board that I'm using, whether it be uh, a Unity or it be a Word Power one, I like to uh, print it double-sided. If it, it is available in another language, I'll do English on one side and Spanish on the other, for example. And I have those ready, readily available when I am doing that bilingual approach within my therapy. And I just flip it over and model the word um, that I just did in English, do it in Spanish, or I'll flip it over and vice versa. That's a really good idea. I like this idea of like having both sides. Um, I mean, it's similar to kind of the toggle feature that's available. Um, so, you know, kind of to summarize, it sounds like there's obviously if you're bilingual um, and you have that ability to instruct in one language and then the other, you know, you can do that kind of immersive therapy. Um, for many of our listeners, I'm sure there there's many people out there who are monolingual. So being able to kind of slow down the process um, for us monolingual SLPs um, also feels like, you know, you can kind of toggle back and forth and try to kind of teach. This does mean the same thing. Um, do you think that there's a, a certain kind of client or population of student who would need that support in both languages um, to make that association? Um, and if so, like, what does that look like? Um, yeah, so... Um we got to look at our users, right? And the level of Spanish that they're in, similar to like uh, how we look at AAC users in English, right? Are they an emergent communicator, context dependent, or are they an independent communicator? Um, when we're talking about for a monolingual SLP, there's just so much that she will be able to model because she doesn't know the language, right? So I would definitely say that, um, for a monolingual, if you're just starting, you don't know the language, you would be targeting someone that's an emergent communicator um, and you know, or even a context dependent communicator uh, because you can really, uh, this goes back to like our whole purpose. What we're advocating for is that you don't need to know the language to be able to support language development in a native language, right? If they see the SLP using Spanish, even one word Spanish, it's like, what? <laughs> like they recognize that like my language at home, like what is going on? So even doing that simple step, it's like a big deal for it, not only the student, but also for families. So, uh, but if you really want to model, I would keep in mind 
emergent, context dependent, um, and then try your try your very best. Um, I know that um, one our whole thing is to promote like cultural diversity and to make people aware like your culture is okay and you don't only have to leave it at home because I know that it's part of who you are so uh, we're honoring it by even using one word even though it might be silly and I know that uh, Sarah has done a lot of uh, she's done a lot of this uh, in terms of like using the student to teach her Spanish um, which is really great I don't know um, yeah Sarah you should talk a little bit more about that yeah, so um, I am a monolingual SLP um, and I'm trying to do some bilingual Spanish therapy with my students and it gets really awkward because I can't pronounce a lot of the words and it gets a little, um, I don't even know where it is on the symbol system, like on, on the platforms, right? So a lot of times what I'll do is like, I'll just tell them like, hey, let's just say this in Spanish and we're learning together or this is Spanish time. Let's do Spanish time together. Or can you teach me Spanish? So I just make it very obvious to them that this is like the time that we're going to learn together. I love that. And um, Maria, when you were sharing, uh, it, it, I, I think it's so right that we need to kind of show our students that, you know, we are accepting of you know, whatever language that they have at home and that it's okay. And I'm thinking about a story. I was working with a student. This was years ago. I was working in a preschool and we had a high population of Spanish speaking students. And the first time that I like started speaking Spanish and I do not speak Spanish. I am monolingual. Unfortunately, I took seven years of Spanish and I have nothing to really show for it, except like I know some colors and some animals and some other things. Um, but the first time that I actually said something in Spanish, um, he looked at me like, whoa, like, look at her. What she what is she doing? <laughs> and she, he was so surprised. Um, and I was this is when I was a young clinician and I was nervous um, to practice because and it was like in front of a three year old, like it wasn't even a big deal. Like this three year old had like no idea what was going, you know, what was going on inside of me just practicing like a few Spanish words. You know, um, I was afraid of a three year old's judgment, um, but I feel like it brings the, the kind of drives the point home that like we have to show our students that we're trying to be culturally competent and sensitive and accepting. And I think that when our students hear us speaking, you know, their home language, um, it just goes a long way in building trust and rapport and, um, you know, not just with students, but just with families in general. Um, so it's like my, my scared, fragile, like ego was nervous about a three-year-old judging my Spanish. Um, you know, but then I started becoming more comfortable and I actually started learning. Like I was doing the, uh, like Duolingo and I was like, I'm going to learn more from my Spanish speaking students. Um, so I think the, the, the key here is just like, try, like, if you have a student who speaks another language, one word is better than no words. And so just try to find kind of a common ground and um, that can actually take you really far. Alma, do you have something to say? I was just going to add that that's kind of the, the basis of Bilingua AEC. We want the monolingual SLP to feel empowered, to empower the families to continue the home language at home. And even if you know a few words, I feel like after spending some time with Spanish speakers, you will catch on to some words and you should feel confident to model for these emergent communicators, especially because you have a device that sometimes the pronunciation is off, but sometimes it's actually pretty clear. So, you know, you can learn from the device itself um, how to speak another language. And I was going to 
uh, circle back to your question about like which user, there's studies out there by Marika King, I think at Georgia State, if I'm not mistaken, that found that four to six year olds are able to toggle between or understand the differences between a Spanish overlay and an English overlay. So really the age doesn't matter. Any client is able to learn bilingual AEC. Um, and there's research by McNamara 2018 that found that complex communicators can be bilingual. So there's nothing to suggest uh, to not do it. Yeah. And I want to kind of talk about that next. Oftentimes we're hearing so many limiting beliefs just in general for our kids with complex communication needs, but then we add the bilingual piece and it's like, no, like they, they don't even know English. Like how could we possibly introduce two languages? So can you guys speak to kind of the myths surrounding bilingualism um, and this idea that like, if we're introducing two languages that we're going to confuse students? So yeah, um, the one that Alma just uh, mentioned uh, was a one that was debunked by McNamara. Uh, Ellen McNamara was that bilingual children with developmental disabilities and complex communication needs should just focus on the one language. And the research shows that bilingualism has no detri detrimental effect to their linguistic, their cognitive or social development of children, including those who use AAC. And in fact, there was noted benefits uh, to the maintenance of that home language. Um, and there was actually harm that was caused by depriving a child access to their home language. And um, I learned of this term, I guess, maybe in the last two years, I don't really remember when, but um, forced monolingualism. And I feel like that is such a strong term, right? Forced monolingualism. And essentially that's what is happening when you're telling a family stick to one language or choose one language. Or another myth is since students are receiving those AAC services in the schools and the languages of the schools is English, um, you know, you wanna ensure their academic and linguistic success. So you have their AAC system only in English and that's not okay. Um, and in fact, the research shows that bilingual students, you know, they spend the majority of their time at home, um, not in a school setting, so they need to have access to that communication, uh, communication tools that are functional for them in their home environment or in their cultural community. Um, again, that research is just pointing to those benefits of reinforcing that primary language, not just with AAC, but even our bilingual um, children in general, like that basis in their home language is gonna, it's, a, it's that foundation that helps them. The research shows it helps them to acquire a second language. I also want to kind of just mention that oftentimes we have families coming to us saying, I only want English, right? And so like, how can we as SLPs who understand bilingualism really advocate for the home language and that it's not going to further delay or uh, confuse or things like that? Um, you know, obviously we hear these things from like teachers and, you know, other people, but we also hear it from families, like really trying to force English only because they think that that's the only way that their child would be successful, um, you know, in school. And so I think it's so important that we under, we truly understand bilingualism as a field and we can really advocate for the home language, um, you know, with all of our students who are bilingual, um, but especially to just our complex communicators, because I think there's that added layer of presuming that things are too complex already, right? Um, so why would we add this additional complexity, um, but instead view it as not a complexity at all, but really the 
gateway to allowing students to really connect with their culture and their family, uh, which is ultimately the work we do, right? Is like, it's, it's sure we want kids to succeed with their academics and all these things. But at the end of the day, we're teaching kids communication skills so they can connect with the people that they love and the people that love them. Um, and that's the family unit. You know, those are the things that are constant. Everything else is changing. Teachers change, SLPs change, friends change, you know, the family remains constant. And so really just advocating for that for families um, who don't know and who don't understand bilingualism, um, I think is important kind of to note. Yes, I agree. And I wanted to I think, say, oh, I just wanted to say that um, these beliefs are deeply ingrained in the a lot of communities because uh, English is the language of success, right? So we truly do, uh, or families, I truly understand where they're coming from. Um, but it's also at the same time, like you mentioned, giving them the facts and the research, but ultimately I, uh, leaving it up to them to choose what language they want to use. Um, but yeah, but it, it's like a hard myth to dismantle, definitely. Go ahead, Melissa. Um, I always just try to decipher like where the parents are coming from too. Like, is this something they've heard? from a pediatrician, which they really, you know, they, they really, they don't, they're not in an ill intention, but they're wrongfully giving these recommendations and parents, especially depending on which culture they come from, they really value the knowledge of a doctor. So if their doctor is telling them choose one language, they're kind of like, wait, 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 why are you telling me otherwise? And then other Another uh, theory that I try to, or like I've tried to understand, are they just trying to assimilate to, to the culture of the United States of America and how Maria just stated, like, you know, quote unquote, it's the language. So uh, I think it is another educational piece that we have to give to parents. And there's a lot of great resources out there where, you know, you can um, give parents handouts and assure them and let them know, actually, you know, these are the benefits to bilingualism, you know, um, there's a ton of great resources out there now, myths and facts about bilingualism. I think Ola Blog has one out um, at La Leo too, at Bilingual Speechy. They have these really beautiful visuals already. And we have a really great visual regarding AAC and bilingualism on our website as well, being AAC.com, um, that you can definitely use those tools to encourage parents uh, to you know, promote the bilingualism in their children. Yeah, you guys do have a lot of really great resources. We're definitely going to talk about those in a second. Um, let's talk for a second about code code switching. So switching between both languages. Um, you know, how do we? How do you kind of uh, target that? Maybe, and also, how do we teach our students when to code switch? Because you know, if a student starts talking to me in Spanish and I don't speak Spanish, I might be confused. So I'm curious what your guys' experience has been clinically um, with code switching and how to kind of teach those skills to an AAC user. Yeah, um, so code switching, uh, it's really interesting. It's part of uh, just normal language development, right? For multilingual individuals. Uh, we code switch for many reasons. Uh, it can be part of like our community, part of the way that we identify. Um, and sometimes it even supports our learning of the other language, kind of how we mentioned how Spanish 
you might know a concept in Spanish, but not in English. So if you are going back to Spanish and uh, enforcing it, it's perfectly okay. Uh, code switching does not, again, delay any language development. So like telling someone like, just speak in English or just speak in Spanish. Um, it's not necessarily bad for them to be code switching. Um, I do think that um, in AAC, um, King can, I, Alma kind of mentioned this earlier, King uh, 20, I believe 2021, Mary King, she did find out that as young as three or four, you can code switch without any problems. Um, she also found out that, and this is specifically using AAC, she also found out that um, it doesn't, uh, code switching doesn't delay any type of message. Um, they did find out that uh, the younger you are, the longer it takes for you to kind of code switch back and forth. But other than that, uh, code switch was like beneficial for your student. Um, in terms of using it clinically, um, it's really like if the individual, it's always leaving it up to like open-ended questions, right? Like, what do you think? And if they decide to code switch and they'll tell you that concept in English, uh, sorry, in Spanish, um, it's kind of nice the way that these systems are organized because you can quickly go back and see like in the English vocabulary, what that word is. And then you understand, oh, you're trying to say this. Um, so you might model it back or recast in English, or you might, if you if you feel comfortable enough to uh, model a sentence using Spanish, then you can do that as well. I love yeah. that. I, um, I had a student that I was doing another bilingual Spanish AAC assessment for, and I was speaking with the family and they were saying that, you know, they do have, they had uh, English, they had basically, they already had AAC set up, but they were trying to optimize it. And there were a lot of things that were challenging. They had like a scrolling homepage. The buttons were huge. I was like, this kid needs like a revamp. Um, but one of the things they said is if he, he was using mostly English because that's what most people were modeling in. And, um, but he, if he didn't get a response in English, he would then go say it in Spanish. Like it was something he was super motivated by. Like this could love fast food. And so he, like his favorite things to talk about were like, go to McDonald's, go to Taco Bell. Um, and so he would say it in English. And if no one was responding to him or not responding in a way that he liked, he would then go say it in Spanish, which I just thought was like, a perfect example of how like our kids will, you know, learn these skills naturally over time. Um, not to say we don't necessarily need to, you know, do some explicit teaching around it. Um, but it was just like so funny to me that he was able to then code switch and be like, okay, this didn't work. Will, will this work? <laughs> that, that's an example of a perfectly bilingual thing that happens. Code switching is used normally by multilingual speakers to get their point across or to say it in a funnier way. Like there might be a funnier vocabulary word to use it. And I do think there is some importance to the actual explicit teaching of like, this is a button. And like, now we're going to use like a similar to how um, bilingual teachers in dual immersion classes might teach it. So they might, some, I've seen some teachers, they have like their English hat and it's like, okay, it's English time now. So now we're going to, you know, just teaching them that there is a button, first of all, and then what words they can find on there. And then we also have created a vocabulary inventory where we list foods and, and we ask parents and give examples of like what foods are particular to your heritage and your culture. And those are words we can add on and they'll be in the Spanish page set. And so this, the student will learn, you know, this is, you know, you'll have your English words. You might have McDonald's on there as well. And then going to Spanish and have like your more traditional foods and your more like holiday type of types of food. So that's a perfect, 
perfect example of code switching and why we should do it and the benefits to it. Yeah. Also kind of when I'm, something just popped into my head, Alma, you know, I always have this idea that like, if I had it in Spanish, I needed it in English. And if I needed it in English, I needed it in Spanish. But what I'm hearing you say is like, perhaps there's certain words and vocabulary that we need in Spanish that maybe we don't need that direct translation in, in English. Um, and so really just figuring out you know, and working with communication partners and families on like, what does that look like? Um, so you don't necessarily need to, because it does feel like overwhelming. I'm like, oh, we added in Spanish, now added in English. Uh, but perhaps, you know, there's some vocabulary that you don't necessarily need to have. You can have them in, you know, the Spanish side and not necessarily the English side. Is that accurate? Yeah, I agree with you that there are some words that it's almost like inconvenient that I'm like, I can't believe I have to like reprogram this word. Like I just did it in Spanish. So there are some words, especially like academic language, right? If they're learning English in school um, that you would have to put in Spanish. But yeah, I would say like there are some heritage foods that are, there is no translation for it. So like, why would you put it in the English page set? You know, mm -hmm. it would be nice for them to understand, like you can easily switch back and say it and it'll pronounce it actually in like your English voice. But um, this is like a Spanish word essential to Spanish language. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Okay. Ladies, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you think is important to add? Yeah. So we do have our website launched. It's uh, bilingueaac.com. And we actually created some templates with the vocabulary word list of early developing Spanish speaking children that was developed by Soto and Cooper in 2021. And they're actually like a template based on topics. So for example, meal times, how requesting, what are some vocabulary words and sentence structure that, that you can model to your students, as well as what is a script for the therapist to say in Spanish to elicit that response. Um, so that's been really helpful for me as a monolingual therapist. Um, I think I could do okay with one word, but then I don't know after that, right? And I also don't want to model incorrectly, which has happened a lot of times, you know, and some, there is nobody around me to correct me because I'm literally the only, there is no Spanish speaker maybe in my class. And so these templates have, I've used them personally to make sure that they're accurate. And um, yeah, I think those are, and we also have a parent questionnaire there. There's also very specific to the Spanish language that also upholds like cultural differences and holidays and foods. Um, and we also have a framework there. That's like a reminder of like, did you, there's a kind of like a checklist steps of being like, did you do, did you first talk to the parents? Did you ask them these vocabulary lists? Like, what do the parents want? Just to like remind ourselves that this isn't really about us and really more about the family and the student. I love that. And I think that's a good takeaway is like, this is not about us, right? <laughs> like this is about the family and supporting the student. And when we, you know, consider culture and cultural differences and language differences, like that's basically, you know, what we're saying is like, this is not about us. This is about you. And that's really ultimately our goal uh, to support families and to support students. Um, super great. You guys, I would definitely recommend all of our listeners go to bilingueaac.com. We'll link to it in the show notes so you can see all their amazing free resources. Sarah, you just talked about like the templates, but there's so many free resources. And of course, they're both in English and Spanish. Um, so if you're working with students who are bilingual Spanish, um, definitely check out their resources. Definitely follow them on Instagram. We're going to link everything in the show notes. So you can make sure you uh, stay in touch with these with these 
awesome ladies. Um, is there anything else to add you guys about anything we haven't covered? No, I hope that SLPs listening feel empowered. Like we said, you do know a lot. You are the professional. But again, keeping in mind that taking a step back and keeping the family unit in mind at all times, but just showing them that you you are interested in their language that speaks volumes to these families. So I hope that the message gets out there that um, monolingual SLPs can support and should support um, bilingual AAC users. Love it, you guys. Thank you guys so much for being here uh, for Talking With Tech. I'm Rachel Madel, joined by Alma, Sarah, Melissa, and Maria. Thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll talk to you guys next week.